0: Hey, you
1: there? hey brother, how are you? How you doing? Hey, uh, you know, pissing up the system as usual.
0: Manny gave me a call one day to tell me there'd been a break in Pedro's case. He'd been working on the case for almost a year, and that whole time he'd been searching for a kid named Stephen Williams. Manny believed Williams was the government's sole witness against Pedro Hernandez, and Manny had a hunch that the cops had forced Williams to lie against Pedro. He needed to talk to him, but he couldn't find him
1: past 11 months for this kid and at one point i almost thought he didn't exist right but i still you know i just had this gut feeling that i couldn't stop i had to get him so yeah. i kept going to the buildings and the project in different areas but everybody kept this kid's information so close
0: finally after all those months of searching Manny told me he'd found a guy from Pedro's neighborhood who actually knew Steven Williams. Well, sort of.
1: So then I said to him, you know a kid named Steven Williams? You you mean William Stevens?
0: And there it was. All this time, Manny had been using the wrong name. The kid's name wasn't Steven Williams. It was William Stevens. Either Manny's source at the DA's office messed up the name, or the DA made a mistake when they wrote it down. Whatever the reason, Manny had the right name now.
1: I said yeah, William Stevens, you know him? And then he stays he stays quiet. The video goes off. I talk to him for about an hour. I buy him a couple of cheeseburgers, a couple iced teas, and we stood there talking. Eventually he agreed to take me to where William Stevens lives.
0: Manny hadn't found his white whale just yet but he was getting closer. From Gimlet Media, I'm Saki Kanafo, and this is Conviction. Many now knew where William Stevens lived, a high-rise building in a massive housing project but he didn't know which apartment, so he says that when he got to the building, he just started knocking on doors.
1: One lady goes, oh yeah, he lives on the 16th floor. <laughs> and felt such a sigh of relief. So now I only had 12 doors to knock on on the 16th floor. <laughs> but I I said, well, let me go right or left. And I flipped the coin, I went left. I knocked on the door, nobody answered. So then I knocked on the door in front of it and the lady there told me that William Stevens lives there, and they call him Junior. So now I waited the next day in the hallway for about three hours with a book sitting on the floor on my briefcase, hoping that somebody would open the door. I was there on six in the morning.
0: Manny didn't know if anybody was home, but he figured that if they were, eventually they'd have to come out.
1: I didn't know what was gonna happen. I sat in that hallway for three hours, you know, my Sun Tzu book and, and a cup of coffee sitting on a briefcase and a suit on the floor at 6 o'clock in the morning, hoping that somebody was going to open that door.
0: What book did you have?
1: Sun Tzu. Yard of War. And you're going to laugh. You know, one thing about my job is you got to have a strong bladder. And so I bought my empty, empty two-liter bottle of Coke just in case. <laughs> and I sat in that hallway and I wasn't going to leave. Finally around eight thirty somebody opened the door and I jumped up and that was his mother. When she first saw me she was like slammed the door at me but I said, Ma'am, ma'am, I'm I'm not a cop, I'm I'm an investigator. I need to find out what happened to your son. I think your son might have been victimized. Then she like put the chain on the door and talked to me. And after about twenty minutes, then she opened the door and let me inside and, and we sat down and then I and I realized how much he was victimized. I mean, it was just sad. That's when this whole thing fell apart.
0: According to Manny, William Stevens' mother said the cops would constantly barge into their apartment and would drag her son into the precinct for questioning. Manny says he asked if he could talk to Stevens, but Stevens wasn't available. His mom said he was upstate in a place called Green Correctional Facility, a prison. He was serving time for robbery.
1: Even after all that, there was no guarantee he was gonna speak to me, so I took a gamble. And I went, what, 400 miles round trip, drove up there and I uh, almost got killed by three damn freaking deers <laughs> because I was driving on that night, you know, three in the morning, wrong thing to do. But, um, you know, when I sat down with him, he wouldn't talk to me. He didn't speak to me for an hour. He just more or less stared at me like, who are you, like, what do you want? And I, you know, and I tried talking to him. I said, look, you know what, I'm a little hungry you want a soda or something? So he was like, okay. And I bought him a Snapple and a couple of chili dogs and some donuts and he swallowed it like you wouldn't believe. Cause he weighed like 98 pounds with clothes. And um, then he opened up and then he started talking to me. My
0: name is William Stevens. After hearing Manny's story, I met with William Stevens myself. We sat in a vast cavernous visiting room at the prison. 20 years old i grew up in the bronx
2: they say i was dead almost my whole life now just grew up right into it so it's like i said probably if i never moved in that neighborhood i probably wouldn't be here right now
0: he was small a little over five feet tall and so quiet my producer and i had to lean all the way forward in our chairs just to hear him sitting there he told us his story of how he became the prosecution's witness in the case of Pedro Hernandez. I want to say up front, David Terrell has filed a lawsuit denying the claims William Stevens made about him. Claims very similar to the ones he's about to make to me. According to Stevens, it all started with the shooting. Not the shooting that landed Pedro and Rikers, but an earlier one. Stevens said he was hanging out with some friends one night. They ran into another group of kids from the neighborhood and an argument broke out. Someone from the other group pulled a gun. A bullet ricocheted off a lamppost and hit him in the arm. After he got out of the hospital, the police brought him into the precinct to question him about the shooting. Steven said that was the first time they showed him a picture of Pedro. He pulls out a picture of Pedro, he shows me him.
2: Then he's like, this is the person I shot you.
0: I'm like, he did not shoot me. I know it wasn't him. The cops, he says, weren't satisfied with that answer. In the following months, he told me, police repeatedly brought him into the precinct. He said they kept trying to get him to sign some documents saying Pedro was a shooter, and he kept saying no. And even when he wasn't in the precinct, even when he was just at home in the neighborhood hanging out, Steven says there was one cop who wouldn't leave him alone, Detective David Terrell. Um, got to the point where one day he just
2: said, you should have signed those papers. I'm going to fuck with you until you sign those
0: papers. At that point, did you sign any papers? No, I didn't sign no papers at all. One night, according to Stevens, he and his friends got into another fight. And this time, he says one of the cops who showed up to the scene was Terrell. Steven says he was thrown in the back of a police car and driven to a deserted back street. It's
2: like a little dead end. It's just like like a donut distributed. So takes me in there. He's beating me up in the back of the car now. He's beating me up, beating me up. Terrell's beating you up?
0: Yes. Were you fighting back? I'm in handcuffs. How can I fight back? He cuffs you? Yes. And when you say he's beating you, where is he hitting you?
2: He hit me in my ribs. He punched me in my face a couple of times. And then he's just slapping me up now, he's slapping me up, he beat me up. You should have signed the paper, you should have signed the paper. Then, I don't know, he just, like, he just hit me in my ribs. time, i like, like oh. I couldn't breathe at all. Enough, it went out of here. trying to breathe, I'm
0: trying
2: to breathe. I take the handcuffs off, he just threw me out the car. So I'm grabbing right my side now. We slow. You we were mad slow. So if I breathe harder, if I breathe in, it's like, like my ribs gonna break. So I get up, falls back down, back up, grab the gate, go back to my neighborhood.
0: This is a story with no video, no documentation. And in a place like the 42nd Precinct, you hear a lot of stories like that. Just a kid's word against the word of the police. Again, in his lawsuit, Terrell denies participating in any wrongdoing related to William Stevens, and Stevens is described in the lawsuit as a, quote, serial liar. I reached out to the NYPD for comment, but they declined. According to Stevens, what happened next was that he made it home, went to sleep, and when he woke up the next morning, he says, his mom told him that a different cop from the precinct had called. They wanted him to come back into the precinct for more questioning. First, I'm like, Nah, I'm not going down there at all. You're not thinking about it. Like,
2: I'm going down there, get them what they want. He's just gonna keep fucking with me. He's gonna keep harassing me and everything. So I'm like, I just goes down there. It shows me that um the picture of Pedro again. Officer Tyrell walked in. He looked at me. He smiled. Then he walked out. A smile. Like he just, He just gave me, like, like he, he just gave me a victory smile. Like, he you, like, you better sign that paper or I'm going to keep coming for you. So, he telling me, I, right, you got to sign this paper. There's a picture with Pedro Hernandez, and then he's like, you got to sign this, da, da, da. And he'll be arrested. You got to gotta know where you live at. You're, like, just sign this paper and everything will go away. So, I'm like, I fuck, whatever, I signed it. And then I just left.
0: After that, Steven said, he signed whatever the cops wanted him to sign. He pinned two more crimes on Pedro, and one of them was the shooting that landed Pedro and Rikers. How, how, how did you feel after you signed it? Um,
2: I just felt like I was used. Like, I gave them what they want. I should never gave them what they wanted. You regretted it right away? Mm-hmm. Because now, I feel as though he's going to get locked up for something he ain't not do now, basically. That's how I feel.
0: I wanted to talk to Terrell about these allegations. So I emailed a lawyer who Terrell had recently hired. He wrote back a two-line reply. I'm not interested. Thank you. For months, Terrell wouldn't comment. And then, Terrell's lawyer had a change of heart. He said Terrell was ready to meet and that everything I'd heard about him was wrong. That's after the break. By the time Terrell agreed to meet with me, he had filed his lawsuit. It was sprawling. Among others, he was suing Manny, the city of New York, the police commissioner, and a bunch of journalists, including Sarah Wallace, who reported a lot of the stories that aired on the local news. In the lawsuit, which is still pending, he contended that the people accusing him of misconduct and corruption were defaming him. He argued that the police department had sold him out, they'd taken him off the streets, making him look guilty, and they'd failed to defend him in the press. And he accused the department of discriminating against him. He said they didn't stick up for him because he's black. In that lawsuit, Terrell's lawyer, Eric Sanders, wrote that Terrell had, quote, no personal involvement with Pedro, Jessica, William Stevens, Sean Nardoni, or pretty much anyone else who had publicly accused Terrell of misconduct. What that broadly means, in legal terms, is that Terrell denied violating these people's rights. When I tried to ask his lawyer more about it, He said he wasn't going to get into the details. And he said Terrell wasn't going to say anything else about the allegations either. He said they'd all been addressed in the lawsuit, and that was enough. But I still wanted to meet with Terrell. I thought that if I could just sit down with him, just get him talking, I might be able to gain some insight into what happened between him and Pedro and all those other kids. And so... My producer Meg and I met up with Terrell in a conference room in midtown Manhattan. It was a strange experience. For months, I'd been hearing that this guy was the boogeyman, the villain of the story. And then we sat down, started talking, spoke for a few hours, and he told me his version of the story, a photo negative of the story I'd been hearing all these months. His story, like Manny's, was a sort of detective story. But in his version, Manny was the villain, Terrell was a heroic detective, protecting the people of the 42nd Precinct from evil. He said he cared about the people in that precinct, more than a lot of cops would. After all, he'd grown up in a neighborhood that was a lot like theirs.
3: I grew, I grew up in bedford stuyvesant in Brooklyn, or uh, on Gates Avenue, and it was bad. That area was really, really bad. It was the worst times in, in the city. A lot of shootings.
0: In 1990, when Terrell was 17, someone was murdered in bed every three days, on average.
3: Because I remember when we grew up, a kid had got shot in our building. He lived on the first floor. A bullet went through the window and hit him. We used to, me and my brother, we had a routine that when shots were fired, we would go in the closet. My mother would push the um, freezer or the refrigerator over to the door. So if any bullets came through the window, it would hit the refrigerator. And when it was over, she would open it. Then we would go to the window to see, you know, what was going on. And he's, oh yeah, such and such got shot, or you hear it the following morning when you're coming out, like, oh, this person got shot, that person got shot, or they were shooting last night, rival crews were shooting at one another. like, oh,
0: I remember, like, so much. Terrell said he was friends with some of the kids who were in those crews. And he said that many of them ended up getting killed. Like a lot of young Black men growing up in the city, Terrell was surrounded by danger, but back then, he didn't see the police as a solution.
3: I just didn't have respect for police officers. I didn't like the way they treated black people. I didn't, where I lived at, they always treated them bad. I lived right around the corner from the 8-1
0: precinct and they used to treat us like shit. Terrell said there was one cop in particular that he and everybody else in his neighborhood hated. I don't remember his name,
3: but I know we called him Rambo, big guy, Jack. Like you could see the muscles bulging out of his shirt. He was a big guy, tattoos all over his neck. And he would basically tell you, "I'm out here today. I don't want you guys hanging out in front of the building on the corner, or like, it's going to be a problem. Like he will, he will fuck you up. He'll kick your ass." The, and you knew when he was working,
0: don't fuck with Rambo. Can you remember a specific time he did something that scared you? We're playing um tag football,
3: and then we hear like a commotion, and then we see somebody running and we see rambo like telling him stop fucking running stop running and you all run to see what happens because you see rambo running and he catches him and then you just see him beat the shit out of him you're like oh shit and then we're like damn what did you think of him at the time i used to be scared to death i'm like oh shit rambo's working today and he would tell you listen i don't want no shit going on don't hang out in this corner you know and you knew to go to the back of the building to play because you didn't want to have no problems with him zero.
0: And he was like, he was scary. So how did a black kid who was scared of the cops grow up to become a cop himself? And not just any cop, but a cop who would gain a reputation for acting a lot like Rambo, a lot like the cop he was most afraid of. Terrell said he kind of stumbled into policing. He said he was a star basketball player in his youth, and that's what he wanted to do with his life. But then he got hurt. He needed a job his dad suggested he get a city job with benefits. So he took the test for the corrections department and the test to join the NYPD, and the police department called him first. He accepted the job, and he went to the academy. But he didn't think much of the training that he got there.
3: Besides learning the patrol guide, I don't think anything really in the academy really taught me anything. They really don't prepare you for
0: what's going on in the streets, because it's a completely different world. Terrell said that the kind of cop they try to teach you to be in the academy a cop who's always polite to people, who operates with courtesy, professionalism, and respect. That kind of cop doesn't last long on the street.
3: You can be really polite to someone, and it, sometimes it works, but then sometimes it doesn't work. But what happens if you just say, guys, do me a favor, you know, you guys got to clear the corner, I'm asking, get the fuck out of here, I'll punch you in your fucking face. Like, oh shit, like, you're not prepared for that. Or fuck you, you know, who are you? You're not my father. Go fuck yourself, go drive your car, get the fuck out of here. They teach you in the academy, you're the police. And nothing's going to happen to you. You know, they don't prepare you
0: that perps to actually fight you. Terrell said that what he learned on the street was that you have to be as tough as the people you're arresting, if not tougher. He started seeing the cops he grew up around in a different light. Maybe Rambo hadn't just been an asshole.
3: He had the respect of everyone on the block. A lot of people hated him, but they respected him. Like, they knew that he would enforce the law. Like... If something went wrong, you know you can go to him and he was going to correct it. Like, everybody in the neighborhood knew who he was. If you met him today, what would you tell him? I'd be like, yo, he was a bad dude. <laughs> you had a lot of people scared of you, bro. You are a bad dude. Bad dude. Which is good. Because you know what? A lot of things didn't happen because he was working. And a lot of bad things did happen when he wasn't working. And then he'd come back and be like, now you got me doing all this work here. Now you know I'm going to make your lives miserable. So you feel like he kept the neighborhood safe? Yeah, definitely. Definitely.
0: Do you identify with him now? Yeah,
3: actually, yeah, I identify with him. I mean, I wasn't like he he was, but I could relate to all of the stuff that he was probably going through, where I could see where he wanted to make a difference
0: in the neighborhood. When I asked if Terrell got into fights with civilians, he didn't hesitate.
3: Oh, yeah, I've definitely had fights in the street, trying to restrain someone or, you know, um, telling someone to back away and they refuse to back away. It's more like giving an order and they refuse the, the lawful order, then you try to arrest them, they don't want to go to jail, and they fight. I mean, we've had some knockdown, dragout drag-out fights in the street.
4: Yeah, he used physical force. Right. Cops don't fight. Cops yeah. use Physi- physical force.
0: That's Eric Sanders, Terrell's attorney. A lot of cops have hired him to sue the department over civil rights abuses. He's known for being ferocious, for going hard.
4: Words are important in right. this business. That's why I said that. There are, the there are no fights. fights. Poli- pl- no, police officers don't fight. Fight is when you're challenging someone because you want to engage in combat. That's not what police officers do. What they do, they use physical force. That's what they do. All right. What he's talking about is using physical force to overcome someone resisting arrest, to tell someone, give them a lawful order to move. So that's why I jump in when I hear these words, because most people don't think words mean something or mean something. They teach you to use physical force, not to fight people. So I want to clarify that. Right.
0: Why do you need to use physical force? What happens if you don't?
3: I mean, if somebody commits a robbery and you catch them, more than likely that person doesn't want to go to jail. This, this you know, I'm not going to jail, and you're going to have to... Put these cuffs on me. Like I've had guys tell I refuse to have a female cop handcuff me. That's why I, I, I punch your partner in the face. I what mean, did
0: you
3: do? He punched her in the face. And how did you react? We started, well, you know, fighting on the ground to, you know, get handcuffs on him.
4: They use physical, physical force, force to right. arrest a person. Physical this force. is this is why right. I had to do this for cops because they be loose with their words. Physical right? Force. Physical That's force. That's right. To arrest him. It's a lawful arrest. That's why he's using force. Right.
0: Fighting. Physical force. Whatever you want to call it, Terrell was saying it was unavoidable if you wanted to make arrests. And in the NYPD, the pressure to make arrests was very high. At least until very recently, the police department's whole system of rewards and punishments was designed to encourage cops to rack up huge numbers of arrests, an approach that inevitably led to a lot of intense confrontations between cops and civilians. In the NYPD, just about everybody, from the rookie cop on the street to the captain of the precinct, was graded on their activity. Activity meaning the number of summonses they gave out and the number of arrests they made. About two years ago, the police commissioner announced that the department would discipline supervisors who pushed for numbers just for the sake of numbers. But when Terrell became a cop, it was all about numbers. If you wanted to rise in the department, you had to make a lot of arrests and Terrell made way more than most people. I've been told by members of the department that cops in high-crime precincts were expected to get 24 arrests a year. Terrell's yearly average, 62. I'm a competitor, so I'm like... And what do you mean competitor? Like, how does that... Like,
3: I compete for anything. Like, if you say right now, I can get to this phone faster than you, and you win, I'm going to be upset. I like to compete. You can't look at it as policing, like, oh, everybody's a bad guy. Look at it more as a competition
0: you think you ranked in the competition to get arrests?
3: Oh, I'm high up. I know that. Ain't a lot of people in my precinct that do that. They tell me I'm crazy.
0: In Terrell's version of events, it was this competitive streak, this fire for making arrests, that put him on a collision course with Pedro Hernandez. After years of making a lot of arrests, Terrell was assigned to a sought-after position in the 42nd precinct. He became the field intelligence officer, the guy at the precinct whose job was gathering information about people he believed were in gangs and crews. Do so you have the Mack Ballers,
3: which are 169 and Wash crew, Wash af. Then you have um, the Cotona 73 Savages, which is 173 Katona Park South. That's-
0: These crews aren't nearly as big or organized as gangs you might have heard of, like the Bloods and Crips or the Latin Kings. They're mostly teens or guys in their early 20s who grew up together in the same housing project or on the same block. They're not running multi-million dollar drug enterprises. The kids that Terrell was going after were stealing from other kids and forging checks. And they were feuding with each other, mostly over things that might seem pretty trivial, a dig on social media, disrespecting someone's sister. But those feuds could escalate, and they were leading to people getting killed. It was Terrell's job to learn as much about these crews as he could.
3: 169 and Boston Road, they hang out in that area.
0: Seems like you have a whole map in your head.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I know this thing like the back of my hand. Like, I, I studied this. Like, I lived those guys. Like, that was, I wanted to know everything about them. And that's my competitive thing. Like, I wanted to know everything about these guys. So there was nothing that they didn't do that I didn't know. So the first issue that we tackled was the Lyman Place. And that was, like, the worst gang in the entire Bronx.
0: Terrell says that other cops have been trying to take down the Lyman Place gang for years. They were one of the precinct's top targets. In one incident, a kid from the crew walked over to a rival crew's territory and started shooting into a random crowd. And one of the bullets killed a 40-year-old Little League coach who just happened to be standing there. Terrell wanted to be the cop who would finally get these kids off the streets. So at that point is when um, we
3: went to the Bronx DA's office and said, hey, you know, we want to, you know, try to get these guys. And we went to him and he said, good luck, because he didn't think we were ever gonna get anything on these
0: guys to get them in jail. Terrell knew that it would be a challenge to get witnesses to cooperate. He knew they'd be afraid of the gang retaliating against them. But the police department had just discovered a new tool for going after these gangs and crews. Facebook was just coming
3: out. So you start getting their Facebook pages, you start looking into them. And they're actually telling you things that they're doing on Facebook. And you actually get to see conversations that they, regular conversations like, yo, we shot that motherfucker. You believe that shit?
0: Terrell says he was one of the first cops to take advantage of Facebook. He used it to gather information about the Lyman Place gang. And then he used that information to pressure the kids into turning on each other.
3: And that's how we got the largest indictment in the Bronx. In the history of the Bronx. And really? Yeah.
0: But. I looked into it. And while it might not be the largest, the Lyman Place indictment was considered to be one of the largest in the history of the Bronx.
3: That's a fact.
2: You sound very proud of that.
3: Yeah, I am, because that was huge, because nobody thought it could ever be done. And like I said, the statistics show from 2014 to 2016, when those guys were incarcerated, that crime in the 4-2 precinct practically disappeared.
0: Crime didn't disappear. But the number of shootings did decline. It was a big win for Terrell, and the story made headlines. The Daily News splashed a picture of him arresting one of the alleged members of the gang, an aspiring rapper who later used that picture as the art for one of his singles. Soon enough, Terrell got his reward. I got the call, like, you're gonna get promoted. And I was like, for
3: real? I like, yeah. I was like, oh shit. Like, we ain't promoted? Like, yeah. And then uh, all the stuff started happening like right after that.
4: In a certain Bronx neighborhood are terrorizing teenagers, making false arrests. Terrell had
0: been in his new role as a detective for just a little over a year, when in the fall of 2016, the accusations against him started appearing in the news.
4: Several teens and young men in the neighborhood tell the I-Team they'd been terrorized by Officer Terrell and other cops in the 42nd precinct. Punch
1: his kids, he grabbed them up, slammed them
0: People weren't just making accusations against him on TV. They were filing lawsuits against him. At first, he says he had no idea what was going on, but then he arrived at a theory. In his lawsuit, Terrell claims that just about everyone who was making allegations against him had connections to what he called a gang-related criminal enterprise. The kid that Pedro had allegedly shot, Sean Nardoni, Terrell says he had ties to a gang. William Stevens, Terrell said he had ties to another gang. And Pedro, according to Terrell, belonged to a group of kids called the Hilltop Crew. Now, Pedro denies being in a gang, but Terrell says Pedro was the leader of the Hilltop Crew. And according to Terrell, Pedro and the Hilltop Crew wanted to destroy his career for one obvious reason. After taking down the Lyman Place gang, Terrell had turned his attention to them. Terrell says he never actually arrested Pedro, But he was investigating him and the Hilltop crew for a variety of crimes. He said he was planning to take them down, and they knew it.
3: They were going to be indicted, the Hilltop crew. And that's when I'm like, oh, they're trying to smudge this whole thing so that
0: it don't get no legs. By accusing you of corruption, they were trying to squash the indictment. the indictment. And Terrell says they had help from someone who knew how to work the system. Someone with media connections.
4: Private investigator Manuel Gomez represents the Hernandez family and several others who say they have been targeted by 42nd Precinct cops, and David Terrell in particular.
0: Manny. According to Terrell, Manny was orchestrating a conspiracy against him, gathering false allegations from members of all those different rival gangs in an effort to take Terrell down. And Terrell alleged in his lawsuit that there was a clear reason why. Money. Now, it's true that Manny was running a business, and it's also true that his clients didn't always have a lot of money on hand, so they couldn't always pay him the fee he says he usually charges up front. So Manny says he sometimes worked on an agreement with his clients. He'd allow them to pay him later, and if a client sued the cops and won a settlement, that's one way they might be able to pull the money together to pay his fees. But Manny denies that he was doing all this work just to make money, He says he was also doing it to help kids like Pedro, kids he truly believed to be innocent. Terrell certainly didn't think of Pedro as innocent.
3: Every week, Pedro Hernandez, Pedro Hernandez, the scholar, the good kid, never been in trouble, never did anything, never did nothing. This is outrageous, so what do people do? Oh, Sarah Wallace, she's a credible news anchor. She must be telling the truth. Let's get behind this. Let's get behind this kid, because he's never done anything. But you, I don't know the Pedro that we know. You don't haven't read the Pedro that I've read. I know who he is. He is, and I'll say it to the day I die, is a vicious kid. He is not an angel. He is not a
4: scholar at all. How do you know that?
3: Um, can we? Can I get into that? I Can't
4: one? say exactly why. Just say you can tell them as a result of a police investigation. I'm not supposed. You pretend oh, like you okay. Can.
3: as a result of police investigation.
0: Terrell wouldn't tell me everything he claimed to know about Pedro, but he did tell me two things to try to convince me that Pedro wasn't the kid everyone saw in the media. The first thing had to do with Pedro's older cases, the shootings and the robberies that had gotten dismissed. Terrell said those cases were tossed out not because Pedro was innocent, but because, he said, the witnesses were afraid of retaliation from Pedro. Pedro but Terrell said he couldn't talk about an ongoing police investigation and so he wouldn't offer me any proof. And the NYPD also declined to comment. When I reached out to Pedro's lawyer, he called this allegation absurd. And then there was a second thing which had to do with Pedro's older brother. Pedro's older brother had been convicted of murder, an awful murder of a 19-year-old romantic rival. I already knew about this case, which is under appeal, and I'll admit, When I heard the details of it, I couldn't help but wonder what, if anything, it said about Pedro. What, if anything, Pedro and his brother may have had in common. But if you're going down that path, you have to consider Pedro's younger brother, who's an honor student in high school, and his sister, who's getting a college degree in criminal justice of all things. Their achievements don't make Pedro a good kid, and the brother's conviction doesn't make Pedro a criminal. Talking to Terrell made one thing clear. He and Manny both believed there was a conspiracy going on in the 42nd Precinct, but they had opposite theories about who was behind it. What if Terrell's version was the true one? What if Manny really had orchestrated a nefarious plot against him? I started looking into it, but I quickly learned that there was at least one problem with Terrell's narrative. Manny and his clients and all the people he'd put on the news weren't the only ones sounding an alarm about Terrell. That's on the next episode of Conviction
2: cold, cold me,
0: Conviction is a production of Gilmet Media. It's hosted by me, Saki Kanafo. Produced by Meg Driscoll, Chris Neary, and Saeed Tijan Thomas. Our editors are Alex Bloomberg, Jorge Just, Lynn Levy, and Jessica Weisberg. Mixing by Sam Baer and Haley Shaw. Music by Haley Shaw. Our credits music is Hard Times by Curtis Mayfield, performed by Baby Huey. The series was developed with help from producer Kate Osborne, and it grew out of a collaboration with the New York Times Magazine. Special thanks to my editor there, Mike Benoit. The series was also made in partnership with Type Investigations. Special thanks to Esther Kaplan and fact-checker Evan Malmgren. Thanks also to Melissa Jeltsin. If you like our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find out about the series.
1: I'm sick and tired of paying you, baby. And I'm sick and tired
0: of having so many hearts.